Greetings from Medford and the Malcor Bunker. I'm doing well down here and enjoy this opportunity to share God's Word with you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To prepare us for this time, let me read the first three verses of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let's ask God's blessing upon us as we proceed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by the Holy Spirit you've awakened us to the truth about him and about ourselves. We come as needy sinners needing to be fed from the word of God. We pray that the passage we are looking at today will indeed do that for us. Forgive our sins. We come to you through Jesus Christ and pray for his sake. Amen. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. Most of you probably realize that Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter, illustrating how Old Testament men and women lived by faith. But their lives are not simply examples for us to follow, although that is true, but they are also illustrations of God's preparation and plan of redemption through the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. I'd like to read the verses of our text this morning, verses 8 through 16 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What do you think of when you hear the word pilgrims? Well, probably you think of the Mayflower pilgrims who left their homeland to come to a new land of opportunity. Or maybe some of you think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress about a man who had his burden relieved and made his journey toward the celestial city. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to be looking at patient pilgrims this morning. And we begin in verse 8 with the pilgrim par excellence. And of course, that's Abraham, or as he was known at the time of Genesis, Abram. 
Notice the first two words in our text. By faith. By faith. And the following faith that he exhibited in his life began with his conversion. We know from Joshua 24.2 that his family served other gods in the city of Ur, which was a center of moon worship. We're told in Acts chapter 7 and verse number 2, Brothers and fathers, said Stephen in his sermon, Hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. The God of glory had sent his grace to reach into Abram's life and to bring him to himself. His saving faith then was centered upon the promises of God in the coming Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he was a converted man back in the Old Testament times. He received the good news of the gospel. It was in its infancy at that time. Nevertheless, it was centered upon Abram as a sinner. He needed forgiveness. He trusted in the Christ to come, and he was counted as righteous in God's sight. That was credited to him. Now, he says, we read in the text here, that he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Think about that. The basic instruction to Abram was, Go west. Go west. And basically, that was it. We can imagine the reaction of his parents when he told them what he was going to do. You're going to do what? You're going someplace you don't even know where it is? What about all you're going to leave behind? And then others in Ur, when they learned about this, they probably thought he was crazy. Why would you want to leave your, your relatives and your friends and your coming inheritance? Why would you like to leave all that and go out to a place where, well, they thought he was going to die out there in the wilderness somewhere since he had no idea where he was going. But he read that in obedience to God, he went out. He would have followed the fertile crescent and come along that way, came to Haran, and eventually he would wind up down in Canaan. Now keep in mind that the readers of this book of Hebrews were people between Ur and and Canaan, between Judaism and Christianity. And there was a tendency for them to kind of long for the good old days of their Judaistic faith and experience. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, no, you need to leave Ur and come to Canaan. You need to leave sin and go into holiness. You need to leave Judaism behind and live for Christ. You need to leave your sin and live to holiness. You need to leave your flesh and go to the things of the Holy Spirit. You need to live your selfishness and go to seeking to serve others. In other words, Hebrews, my Christian friends, you need to realize you are on a new pilgrimage, a new journey, moving toward a spiritual inheritance. We come to verse 9, and there are those two words again, by faith. And we read there in verse 9, 
by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Canaan was as a foreign land to him. Well, of course, he had never been there before, but it continued that way. And are you aware that Abraham never laid a claim to any property there in Canaan? Imagine year after year after year, he would put his tent up, then he'd take the tent down, put the tent back up, take it down, and he kept doing this over and over and over again. He purchased no farm. He built no house. He made no official political alliance with anybody in Canaan or elsewhere. And then think of what he had to face. Hostile neighbors, the weakness of his nephew Lot, warfare, famine, uh, a bad experience in Egypt, childlessness, the matter with Hagar and Ishmael, the sacrifice of his son Isaac. And we think we have challenges to our faith. Think of Abraham's and his challenges. But he continued to worship the Lord wherever he went with his tents and family and possessions. He would build altars, reminding himself of the Christ that was to come and focusing on the promises of God. Earlier in this chapter 11 at verse 6, we read these words, And without faith it is impossible to please him, that is to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And surely that was Abram. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they take the phrase that we would read in our English versions, uh, Abram the Hebrew, and they translate it, Abram, Abram the migrant, the migrant, an immigrant, a fugitive. And he was living in tents with Jacob and uh, Isaac and Jacob, who also were pilgrims and fellow heirs of the promises that God had made, not only to Abraham, but also to Isaac and Jacob. Here are these words from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, beginning at the end of the uh, verse number 4. After his father died, God removed him from there, that's from Haran on the way to Canaan, into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years." That took a lot of faith for him to continue to trust in the Lord as the time went by. So these Hebrew Christians that were reading this letter needed to look to Abraham as they were facing such things as persecution, suffering, and that big temptation to return to their old ways. And he urged them to cling to the promises of God. In our day, we have a thing called easy believism. And many well-meaning Christian people and churches, they mean well, 
but they are very interested in getting that decision, getting somebody to say, yes, I trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, signing on the dotted line, saying a little prayer, and then that's kind of basically it. You're in. But they ignore what happens when challenges arise. That faith has to be genuine. And he's the writer of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to do that. Above all, both these Hebrew Christians and we today need to look to Jesus. As the writer does in chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's our responsibility as believers. We move to verse 10. In verse 10, we find the reason spelled out why he was able to leave Ur and go to an unknown destination and live there as a stranger. For he was looking forward. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said, Life can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forwards. And I think there's some truth to that we can apply to this part of our text. Faith always anticipates. The first verse of this Hebrews chapter 11 is, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abram's life included the future tense. Indeed, it is quite remarkable how far Abram looked ahead. Remember, he was living about 1,900 years before Christ came. Yet here he is, a man with this great forward look. But what was he looking forward to? Well, look at verse 10 again. But For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city. The city. Not primarily the land of promise. Something else. Now, in... The first century, to cultured first century dwellers and people, as the Hebrews, a city was the highest form of civilized existence. It was the pattern of the ideal community. It was something corporate, not just individual. What was Abram's city? Well, first of all, it was the city with foundations. The Greek is the having foundation city. In other words, the city that's going to endure that's going to last. This has to be the heavenly Jerusalem, which the scripture elsewhere speaks. The new application, even for us today, is Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that stands in contrast to the cities of man, this enduring city with foundations. Take Ur, for example. Today, there's virtually nothing left of that city. Is it crumbled to dust? The second thing we notice here is that the designer and builder is God. He himself has planned and founded this city, and he's forming it. He's the master craftsman. He's the one who has constructed it. But what do we think about the heavenly Jerusalem? What did he think? 
How much did he know about it? Probably not much, for he lived in the dawning time of God's plan of redemption. God had revealed something to him, but probably not as much as we have. But even with our full scriptural uh, scripture before us, how much do we really understand of what heaven is going to be? Yes, we have more information in the Bible, but still it remains a little hazy to us as hopefully we look forward to it as Abram did. Whatever he had, he accepted by faith in God's word, just as he did with his conversion experience when God touched him, showed him his sin, and brought him to himself, and he believed what God said and trusted in that. So this has certainly some meaning for us today. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. In Revelation chapters 21 and 22, much is said about the heavenly city. Let me just read you the first three verses of Revelation 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now let's go to a second individual in our text this morning, and that is Abram's wife, Sarah. I'm not going to spend too much time on her. It's dealt with in verses 11 and 12, but let me point out, couple of things. First of all, notice what it says in verse 11, the first two verses. There the words are again, by faith, by faith. We supplement that with going on that even when she was past the age, as past the age to conceive, she considered him faithful who had promised. So Sarah eventually joined Abram in this journey of faith, this pilgrimage of faith, she too had a forward look in what God had promised for them. And the result of her faith, the continued fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 through 6, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, that is God brought Abram outside, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Sarah played an important role in this whole arrangement that God had prepared for them. Now we come to the last section of our text, verses, 11, verses 13 through 16. And we start out with the words, these all. And that's the first question we need to deal with. These all died in faith. Who are the all? Probably just the individuals that we have just studied. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. The ones that lived before the flood and during the flood, namely Abel, and Enoch and Noah, 
who are mentioned earlier in the chapter, uh, they were not pilgrims in a strange land, but surely they lived by faith. You read the beginning of verse 4, verse 5, and verse 7, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah. But now another question arises here in verse 13, and that is the opening statement. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now that's rather strange. We've had this emphasis of promise, what God had said he would provide for Abraham and Sarah and the others. Well, here's the answer, I think. They did receive the promises, but not their ultimate fulfillment. Canaan remained only a promised land to the very end of their days. But heaven, even for us, remains as a promise, an inheritance. We aren't there yet. But the important thing is, the promise has been made. Verse 13 goes on. Having seen them and greeted them from afar. The English Standard Version says, having embraced and welcomed them, or seen and greeted them. Another translation is, having received and embraced them, welcomed them. New King James Version, having been persuaded and assured. I think we can took all these ideas together and say that as they received it and saw it, they embraced them. They welcomed these promises. So it wasn't a cold, formal reception of the promises, but a warm and hearty acceptance of them. And they saw them from afar, from a distance. Again, Jesus' words in John 8, 56, Your father rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So these people in our text here this morning, they only had glimpses of the promised land only glimpses of their heavenly home and the heavenly Jerusalem. We think of an illustration of this, Moses only getting a glimpse of the promised land, but not the full view of it. We think of Pilgrim himself in Pilgrim's Progress and his journey as he only had a glimpse far outway of this light coming from the celestial city. Think of something like the New York skyline. When I was 11 years old, our family took a trip across country, and one of the stops was New York City. And I can remember the night before, I was excited. I, I could hardly sleep envisioning this great city with these tall skyscrapers, especially the Empire State Building. And I only had a glimpse of it as we came into it, but my, what an exciting moment that was for me. Think of the military uh, people coming back from World War II as they sailed into New York Harbor. And, and the glimpse they had, the first glimpse they had of it, they were looking forward to getting into the city and being back on the homeland. Perhaps illustrations of the excitement and the uh, joy in the hearts of these patriarchs as they envisioned what God had promised for them. We go on to verse 14. For, that is because, this is going to explain what has just been said in verse 13, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In case there's any doubt, you Hebrew believers, they had no doubts. 
They're seeking something beyond this world. And they lived and acted as if they were just strangers in the world without a permanent residence, traveling in search of something that would be permanent, that would be enduring, that would have foundations. But let's face it, patience can easily wear very thin. And we can think of them reflecting and saying, you know, there were some benefits of the good old time, the good old days, familiarity with our, our Judaism. And so they would think back to uh, relatives and friends that they had, that they had left behind. And there didn't seem at times no evidence of anything becoming actualized where they were. So probably many of them were thinking, maybe we ought to go back to Ur, in effect, or back to their home cities. Such an exile will be very voluntary. And as we move into verse 15, we read, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. It was completely voluntary. Nobody was stopping them. But then we go on to verse 16. But that little word of contrast with what's just, just been said. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. There's that future look again. So in Canaan, they, know, they made no plans for conquest, to claim any title to the soil, to have any extensive purchase of farms. They lived and died without owning any of the land, except just enough to bury their dead. And as we come to the last part of our text, the word therefore appears, and it introduces a quite remarkable statement. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Not ashamed to be called their God. Of course, God never is ashamed of anything. But I think this means that even the Lord himself had a great desire that his pilgrims recognize him as their protector, their benefactor, their friend. And so throughout the Bible, we read this phrase, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I was not ashamed of them. I rejoiced in their trust in me. Each one a faithful, patient pilgrim. And the evidence of this is at the end of verse 16, where we read, For he has prepared for them a city. Note the past tense. Not that one day he'll do it, although there's a certain sense that's true, but it's so secure that it's as if he had already done it. We read in Matthew 25, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And that is the promise made to believers today, that glorious heavenly home. But these patient pilgrims that we have looked at, they lived a long time ago. Remember, Abram lived around 1,900 years before Christ. How do they relate to us? 
Let me share five pilgrim applications of the verses we have considered. First of all, pilgrim faith. You might expect this because obvious that's much of the text and the center of this whole chapter, the word faith, by faith. O.T. Alice, uh, one of the original professors at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, he wrote these words, The whole emphasis in this great faith chapter in Hebrews is that the faith of the Old Testament worthies was not earthly, but heavenly. Especially note that this faith was not a, a vague sort of thing. Remember what it says in that first verse. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And of course, it all centered faith in the coming Messiah Christ, the Son of God who would come to earth and give his life a ransom for many, who would take the punishment upon him the sinners like us deserve. Now, if these Old Testament saints lived and died so triumphantly on bare promises, how can those of us who live in the time of fulfillment do any less and falter in our allegiance to him? Should not our faith really be stronger? Application number two, pilgrim commitment. The Hebrew Christians had opportunity, as we have seen, to return back to the attractions of Judaism. All the more necessary for the writer of Hebrews to urge them on to a full commitment to the things of Jesus Christ, to not yield to the temptations of the world around them. Now, indeed, God's true people can't do that. Why is that? Because in the center of our souls, we have no real desire to do it. Paul wrote in Romans 6, verse 2, How can we who died to sin live in it? So daily, we should renew our commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ to be committed to him fully and completely, even as pilgrims. Application number three, pilgrim life. Although we are sojourners, we are not to sit around twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing. Abraham certainly didn't. And that's true also of Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. They were very active people. We must not mope and refuse to live effectively in this world. That, that's fatalism. That's not faith. As we do, a wonderful truth will be with us in our ongoing vision of our true homeland. So matters which loom so large in the thinking of, of unbelievers really should be relatively unimportant to us. Number four, pilgrim people. Pilgrim people. Why, that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. In 2002, the OPC published a book, History for a Pilgrim People, put together by our first historian, Charles Dennison. In 2015, Daryl Hart, another minister in our denomination, he reviewed a book about American evangelicalism, and this is what he wrote. Since its founding in 1936, the OPC has known the meaning, in Peter's words, 1 Peter 1.11, of being aliens and strangers 
This understanding emerged in the context of the first generations leaving behind tall, steepled churches and well-appointed manses to hold services in schools, homes, storefronts. Since its founding, the OPC has been aware of the discrepancy between Christian faithfulness and broader trends in American society, an ambivalence that has long been familiar to Orthodox Presbyterians. So we hurry in the OPC as we think of our history and we realize our small place in the world, we realize we are very much strangers and pilgrims. Number five, pilgrim hope. This hope, exemplified not just by Old Testament and New Testament saints, but by many Christians down through the centuries, even in the most difficult of experiences, have been times of inspiration to those who have witnessed to them, mainly because their hope was in going to be with the Lord in their heavenly home. And so these patriarchs had this hope. Abraham, when he was offering Isaac, he said, well, if I have to kill my son, I know that God can raise him from the dead. Isaac gave future blessings to Jacob as well as to Esau. Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, and Joseph gave special directions that his bones must be carried from Egypt into Canaan. Dr. George Morrison, a great Scott preacher, wrote, The important thing is not what we live in, but what we live for. Now to conclude. I've made several references to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. As a young boy, when I first became acquainted with the idea of the book, I was very much aware of the idea that he had this burden on his back and it fell off when he came to the cross. There's even a little song we used to sing, All of my burdens went rolling away, rolling away. But as I began to read the book, I discovered a surprise. His conversion experience was only the beginning of his pilgrimage. He still had a long way to go on his journey through life. And that's the way it is with us. We must travel along patiently on our pilgrimage, trusting with faith and the constant promises that stand for us from the Lord himself. Centered in our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life on earth journeyed all the way to the cross to give his life for us, that we might have eternal life. So as you face tomorrow and the other days of this week and the coming days, let us join with those who have gone before us, other patient pilgrims. And remember, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Join me in prayer. Father, we pray you would give us by your spirit the strength we need to live for you, to be patient, to be trusting, to never let our faith waver as we rest upon your promises. Pray you would bless each one who is hearing this message. Meet with them this very day. Forgive our sins through Jesus we pray. Amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.